Trust 20 is the new standard of restaurant safety and diner comfort. Trust 20 restaurants are part of a national network of restaurants that meet a high standard of cleanliness and safety, giving diners confidence in the measures you're taking to keep them safe. Trust 20 restaurants receive expert guidance, operational resources, and benefit from diner-focused promotion on behalf of Trust 20 network of participants. So how do you get certified? It's easy. First, go to trust20.co and request a certification appointment. Then, a Trust20 specialist will reach out and arrange a visit. The specialist conducts a 60-minute review and consultation according to Trust20 tactics. If adjustments are needed, the Trust20 specialist will provide guidance to assist. Now that you're certified, have peace of mind that you're doing everything you can to keep your restaurant safe and start enjoying the benefits of Trust20 certification. Remember, visit trust20.co to request your certification appointment today. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still and I am your host, We've got a big, big week ahead of us here. It is Monday. Tomorrow is election day, and we are we are coming strong. We are coming strong today with our guest Benjamin Goldberg. This is the uh, this is an interview that I've wanted to do for like multiple years. He's one of those people that just has always been somebody I've looked up to, and um, the chance to sit down with him and just talk. We talked for an hour and forty five minutes. And we go over, we, we hit the gamut of things. So if you're anybody, if you're interested in restaurants or anything that has to do with hospitality or how these guys work over at Strategic Hospitality, this is the interview for you. Um, I want to say thank you to Benjamin Goldberg and uh, Jordan, all the people that helped set this interview up. He was just so gracious with his time and just such a nice guy. And um, I just... I just want to say thank you. Thank you. It's just a fantastic interview. I had so much fun doing it. And I hope that you out there are getting ready for tomorrow. You're getting ready to go vote because we have got an amazing episode tomorrow with Dee Patel. She's the managing director over at the Hermitage Hotel. And we talk about the woman's suffrage, the 100-year anniversary, and the whole story behind how it happened and what the, the Hermitage Hotel, their role in it. And it's a perfect perfect episode for an election day. So stay tuned because on Tuesday, uh, November the 3rd, we will have another brand new episode. It's a Monday, Tuesday this week, not a Monday, Wednesday. We'll be coming at you with an all-new roundup Thursday live at 3.30. We'll, Delia, Joe Ramsey, and myself are going to go over all the news that's happening in the Nashville restaurant world. So excited to have you there. Do want to tell you real quick, uh, we have got t-shirts. We've got these super soft Canvas Tri-Blend t-shirts, and they are Nashville Restaurant Radio official. We have hats. They're branded Bill's hats. So they're super high quality. And you can buy both of these on our website at www.nashvillerestaurantradio.com. They are for sale and this week only. As a special election special, I am waiving all shipping. So I am going to pay the shipping for your shirts and hats and with every single purchase, you will get two Nashville Restaurant Radio stickers, which are great for laptops, cars, wherever you want to put them. Uh, 
we just appreciate the support. We're out here doing uh, everything we can, and we just these shirts are just amazing. I want to say, this is not an advertisement, but Chris Perez over at Global Tees Tennessee just did the best job in the world. If you're a restaurant out there and you need t-shirts done and you want the super soft, amazing t-shirts, this guy is somebody who is just goes, he went so far above and beyond. He's been a friend of mine since I was 16 years old. And uh, I gave him a call and I said, hey, make some shirts. He's like, no, no problem, man. And he came right over. He brought samples. We talked about colors. We talked about feel. We went over and I really wanted kind of a vintage look and I wanted the colors to bleed in. I didn't want this like, this bright color on the front. I want it to kind of bleed into the shirt. He was like, I know what you mean, man. When he came by, we picked out all the perfect colors and I put a lot, a lot of energy and time into making the shirt. But the level of service that he brought was second to none. And if you are out there right now and you want to work on your merchandise, whatever you're doing to sell, if you're a restaurant and you need something, give him a give him a shout. Um, you can get a hold of him at Chris at Global Tees. That's G-L-O-B-A-L-T-E-E-S. Tennessee a TN.com. So Chris at globalteastn.com and uh, tell him that I sent you because then he'll know what you're talking about. Um, he doesn't know I'm saying this right now, but he did just a hell of a job. And if you want to buy a t-shirt or a hat right now, free shipping at our website, NashvilleRestaurantRadio.com. Whew. Okay. Um, I don't have any more ads for this show. I'm just so excited to bring this to you. Thanks for listening. Benjamin Goldberg. With much excitement, uh, finally welcoming in Benjamin Goldberg, co-owner of Strategic Hospitality. Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm looking forward to it. I've been doing this interview thing for a little while, and you were one of those people kind of, as I got going, there's no way I think I could have talked to you six months ago. I just didn't have the, the confidence. But now I'm like, I'm chomping at the bit because there's so much that you do. And I've talked to so many people who've worked with you that I kind of have a general idea of what I want to talk about. So this oh, is going to cool. be fun. No, I love, I love the show. I told you that when I, uh, when I ran into you in 12 South, I've been uh, listening for a while. So congrats on everything. It's been, uh, it's been a crazy ride the past six months, but uh, you've been doing awesome stuff. Well, thank you very much. And I think that a congratulations is in order for you um locust just opened last week congratulations thank you so much it's been fun so i i'm gonna jump right in i mean i think that we can do lots of pleasantries but i want to jump right in because i want to know i want to go back to the beginning of time when uh <laughs> not not that far i'm not that open yeah i know that's the thing <laughs> i want to go back to like 2003 from when you came on my radar or when, when I don't know if the city of Nashville, we can go back farther if you want to go back to college and all these other things, but I really want to start at bar 23. I had Jim Myers on the, uh, on the podcast a while back. And I said, I think that the Goldbergs are some of the most innovative people in the world. And bar 23, when it first opened and I went to bar 23, I was like, Oh my gosh, Nashville is it felt like New York. It felt like I was in New York and bar 23 was like this moment. It was a moment for me that I went, Nashville is going to be changing. Nashville is going in a direction that I didn't know Nashville could go in. And you did that with Austin Ray. Tell me the genesis of that. And, and Jim Myers, to his, he goes, 
I wrote that. I was I wrote the worst review for that place. <laughs> it was, that I hated is, uh, it. That's correct. Yes. Uh, no, I think um, so. Um, Austin and I had a very similar group of friends um, in through high school. Uh, he went to Boston for college. I went to Miami for college. Um, we both moved back to Nashville, hoping to open up a bar. Um, we got to know each other um, pretty well um, in 2002. Had a few meetings of like, hey, if we both do this, we're going to sort of dilute down what each of us wants to do. Let's let's partner and do this together. And I will be honest, I could never have found uh, at that point in my life a better partner. I mean, he is. Um, I think the absolute world of him to this day. Um, and starting in 2002, we hit the ground running and decided we knew exactly what we wanted to do. We had no idea what what it would turn into. We had no idea um, if anyone would even show up, but we knew what we wanted to do. Um, and we were committed for, we were all in um, for about a year before it finally opened. That is for sure. Wow. And then you had the addition of City Hall next door. Mm -hmm. This is this is a time when the Gulch, I mean, the Gulch was nothing. I mean, there, there's people were going like, what is a Gulch? That's, that's, what is that? I don't even know what a Gulch <laughs> is. Where are we going? And you were like the first one. Did you see that area as a, was it cheap rent or was it, did you think that like, this is where Nashville's going? Um, no, I mean, look, we were lucky. We, um, we were, we tell people we were in the Gulch before there was like a real Gulch. Um, and what I will tell you is we ended up there because we had landlords that believed in us. We were two 23 year old punk kids that just wanted to open a bar with nothing really behind us. We had spent about nine months attempting to raise money um, to open up a, a bar that we sort of had a vision on, but really had a hard time explaining to people. Um, and to their credit at Market Street with um, Jay and Joe, they took a flyer on us and um, allowed us the opportunity to to lease a building from them. Um, and that is ultimately why we ended up there. And the building is gorgeous. I mean, we the, the building is, we want an old sort of beat up building. We went in, a, in an old warehouse um, with super high ceilings, great floors, the whole thing. So we absolutely loved the building and the space and the windows and all that stuff. Um, and then lucked into the fact that they would even, quite frankly, talk to us. That's amazing. And you signed what, a five-year lease? And when the lease up, you decided just to get out? Yeah, exactly why, right. Why did so, R23 end? Um, well, you know, well, I'll never forget signing the lease. We were like, five years? Like, oh my God, like, what? Do, that's crazy. Like, if we make it a year, we're stoked. So five years felt like, you know, forever. Um, what we, you know, one of the lessons you learn in this business is like, that's actually really not that long. Um, but in those five years, a lot of change, right? So we were there, a lot of things around us opened up. Um, and the, the metrics of the whole thing just didn't make sense to, to push through, but also city hall had a shorter lease, um, and urban outfitters really wanted that space. Um, yeah. and so sort of towards the end of city hall, it lined up per perfectly with the end of, um, end of bar 23. And so we just sort of said, you know what, this is the most amazing moment in time let's just get out now while we look back on it and um, with like the fondest of memories in the world, as opposed to dragging something out that quite frankly would have been more difficult to do. So at 23 years old, you guys spend a year, you get the thing going and you, like you just now said 
we thought we'd make it like a year and we'd be like, oh my gosh. So how do you make a business plan anticipating one year? Did you anticipate just being like slammed for a year and then being like, we're out? Like, I mean, what did, what did you, when you say that, like we thought it was going to last a year, you didn't really think that. No, I mean, we, we had, um, our goal was, was always, you know, we had to raise money for this. We, we raised, we spent, a, you know, almost a year calling 350 people, 400 people um, to invest in this crazy bar, quite frankly, with no neighbors at the time. Um, and so we knew that our number one goal, our mission in life was to get the investors paid back. And we ran all the math and we knew that it, we couldn't do that in one year. Um, but we also, I mean, I, I was sort of joking about the year, but five years when you're 23, seems like a really, really long time, okay. especially in the crazy restaurant business. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we did not have anticipation at the time to make it out of the first lease. There, there was never a thought that we would go past five years. So you do this and then you pivot in 2000, um, so 2005, 2007, what year did you open um, Paradise Park? 2007? Yeah, 2007. And that's the only one I'll remember. All the other ones, sort of uh, the years, I don't know at all. But 2007 was Paradise Park. I don't have the years for the rest of them. So it'll be. Thank that, you. That's good. It works out really well. Watch them all. <laughs> so Paradise Park, and this is something that I, what I'm, what I want to get at as I go through these different restaurants and how you conceptualized them what you did the story behind each one is hey I'm, I'm just learning because I'm, I'm a restaurant guy and I, I love what you're doing and the amount of risk that you seem to take almost like yeah I'm just gonna just do this it's so I'm, I'm in awe of some of the innovation that you guys have been able to do and I want to get into the story of your brother but seeing this spot downtown Nashville 2007 you were by yourself you were just Benjamin Goldberg um, opening Paradise Park. Uh, what was that? What was that experience like? Did you just find the building? Did you have this idea for Paradise Park well in advance? I'd love to hear a little bit of that story. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that that went into it. Um, I think that so 2007 Nashville was different than it is today. Downtown was different than it is today, um, and different. we had. Bar 23 and City Hall were open at the time. Um, I, I was always sort of tinkering around with this idea of like a, a loud, obnoxious place to drink cheap beer. Um, and and that is really what was tossing around. And then along with that, at the time, the rules for bars were way more strict than they are today. 50% of your sales had to come from food. Um, at the time to have like a liquor license. And so there was always a thought process that you needed some sort of food. Um, and so that was really where this came from. We wanted to do um, $6 pitchers of beer and burgers and fries and just be have really nice hospitality. Um, and then, you know, hand patty burgers, hand cut fries, sort of bring some, some real food downtown. <laughs> Um, at yeah. the time in 2007, though, we were the only ones on that side of the street, basically. I mean, people looked at me like I was insane. And the answer, I mean, the, the question I got all the time was like, you're doing Paradise Park on the wrong side of Broadway. Why would anybody cross the road? Everyone's going to be going to Tootsie's and the stage and all those places. Why would they cross the street? 
And in the back of my mind, all I thought about was like, if I'm not good enough at what I do to get you to cross a street, then I need to get out of this business completely. Um, and the goal from day one was to get on the circuit. No one goes to one bar downtown. They go to lots of bars downtown. Yeah. And I knew that if I could just get on the circuit of them getting onto the train of hopping from bar to bar to bar, and if Paradise Park was on that, um, we would be all right. Um, and so that was sort of the, the thought process to it. And so downtown on that side of the road, like you mentioned, I mean, there was, I, I, I will never forget Shawnakee's was a bar down there and it, it closed and it sat empty. I mean, like 10 years. What was that? It was just, which is now honky tonk central. Yep. Well, like this just gigantic empty building. And I'm like, is nobody just going to buy this? Like what's going on? And you guys had paradise park. You had paradise park. And what was your, did you see what was happening in Nashville? I mean, to buy that building and just to kind of be down there, did, what was your vision? What did you see Nashville being at that time? What did you see Nashville being in 15 years? Um, so or 13 years. I mean, honestly, I don't think I thought that far. I will tell you that one of the things you referenced a little while ago was, was bar 23 and the people that were going in there. And I think what Austin and I recognized at that point with bar 23 was there was this amazing energy amongst younger people in this city that looked at restaurants and bars differently than what my parents were viewing it as. They cared about certain things that quite frankly, my parents don't care about, right? Like, um, and then there was this massive commitment to this really cool energy of young people that were going out, doing interesting things, whatever that might be, whatever industry they were in. It's not just restaurants and bars. It's all of these different things. And we got to meet all these people. And I was like, man, there's a lot of momentum from a younger generation in the city to push this thing forward. Um, and like that was a lot of the energy of Bar 23. Um, it was a lot of younger people that were just doing fun, quirky, interesting things. And that was a place they sort of came together to hang out and let loose and have fun. And through that, got to meet some of the greatest people in the world. And then when Paradise Park came around, my thinking to the, the whole thing there was like, everyone says they don't go downtown. Like I hear it to this day all the time. Everyone was not sure, I don't go downtown. I never go downtown. It's just no one local ever goes downtown. And I'm like, oh, you've never gone to a concert at the Ryman? You, you, you don't go to Preds games ever? You, you don't go to Titans games? You've never gone to the symphony? You've never gone to Preds? You go downtown. You just don't oh, associate yeah. what I'm doing downtown as downtown. And so my thought was like, if I can do something authentic and real and, and make it feel like you're comfortable going and we're not going to take advantage of you, then all my friends from around the city that are going to a Preds game, they may stop by before the game and grab a burger and fries. And then all of a sudden you've got a really cool, interesting dynamic of people before a hockey game, before a concert, before whatever it is um, that were coming in and hanging out. And, and that was the whole thought process there. Um, and again, just got super lucky that, that the people we work with executed that. And what an amazing place it is. I spent my 30th birthday uh, at Paradise Park, got, got on stage and they said, do you remember the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I remember my sister did a uh, scavenger hunt for me, and we was like me and like fifteen people. My my wife threw this big party, and uh, we went downtown and, and did all of the things that everybody denies that they do. And uh, <laughs> we went yeah. down there, and, and one of the things was on the scavenger hunt. I had to to get a bar to do the macarena, 
And one of them was I had to get on stage with a band and have them sing me happy birthday. And I checked off that part of the scavenger hunt at Paradise Park. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Well, that's a cool memory for me. I mean, you know, it's a, 12 years ago, something like that. That's awesome. But, um, you guys also do free beer for people wearing Preds gear on game days. Or you did. Yep. I don't know if you still do that. Still do. Still do. Uh, which was always a cool thing, too. I just thought that was just a cool way to say, hey, look, put your Preds gear on. Come pregame here. Come have a beer on us. Which is just another innovative, just kind of a cool thing to do for Preds fans. I yeah, I mean, neat. it's all there's a lot of synergy there. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea is that we wanted to create an energy before Preds games. I grew up playing hockey um, and it's, a you know, there's 41 home games a year. And so if I can get you down there 41 times and you're grabbing a second beer or a burger, chicken, you know, whatever that is, um, you know, that's the thought process. And also, you know, I think that um, there are now so many places downtown, um, just something where, you know, you can go in and, and hang out and feel good. That's that's what we're trying to create. I think you did it. You did it swimmingly. So 2007, and I do, you know, <laughs> I have a, I have a direction I want to go here. I feel yeah. like I'm a little, I'm, I feel like I'm a tad Chris Farley a la interview with, with <laughs> Chris Farley back in the day on Saturday Night Live where he's got Paul McCartney. He's like, remember that time? Did you guys play that song? Yeah, <laughs> that was cool. I like that. I, I feel like I'm in that stage of an interview and I've got, I have a direction. I really like, remember that time when you had Paradise Park? Yeah, it was awesome. I'm going uh, somewhere. I promise. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm here to hang out. So wherever you want to go, you tell me. I'm happy. So we, I was trying to, I'm trying to establish back in the day because I think most people listening to this were not in Nashville in 2003, 2005, 2007 when that happened. And to me, who was in the business, I did my level one sommelier in 2003, and I was uh, the bar manager at Amerigo. Okay. on West End Avenue uh, in 2004. And so, I mean, I was right there in that scene. I mean, I'm drinking wine. I'm having cocktails. I'm hanging out with friends after we get off work. And Bar 23 was like, whoa, there's this place now that we can go that's like, we got to get dressed up after work. And you know, we got to go there. And you almost had to like put on this persona when you got there. And it was really, it was a departure and it was amazing. And then Paradise Park also, I mean, that was just one of those places because we did go downtown back then. You went, you know, Division Street or not Division Street, but Demumbrian was kind of blowing up back then with the 10 roof yep. and two doors down and those type bars. Um, so, I mean, there was just there was this, this thing that was happening in Nashville back then that I don't think a lot of people recognize. So I'm going back to kind of establish where we came from yeah. in 2007. You brought your brother on. Yep. You brought Max on. Is that when you formed Strategic Hospitality? Were you just Benjamin Goldberg restaurateur? And then when he came on, is that when you formed Strategic? Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I think I formed Strategic maybe a, a few months before that. And and really, I mean, I begged Max to move back to Nashville for years um, and he wouldn't do it. Um, so basically what happened was, so Austin and I did Bar 23 and City Hall together. Um, and when I was conceptualizing Paradise Park, Austin was with me on this. It wasn't just Benjamin conceptualizing Paradise Park. Austin and I spent countless hours talking about Paradise Park together, and we had every intention to do it together. Um, and what ended up happening was just a, all of these circumstances of life were coming to bear. And 
um, Austin decided not to do Paradise Park um, with me. And I decided that I really wanted to do Paradise Park. That was why we stopped working together. It was strictly just because I wanted to keep going. And Austin just decided that he wanted to get out of the, the business, uh, which is ironic to say now because he's heavy in the business at that heavy. moment, wanted to get out a little bit. And so Paradise Park came to be because got a phone call from uh, the people that own the building and said, hey, we bought a building in downtown Nashville. Would love to bend your ear on on what you think would be fun down there. And I was like, look, I'm actually loading in a show at City Hall, so I can't meet you anywhere. But if you want to swing by, feel free to swing by. I'll chat with you. I got nothing but time on my hands. And lo and behold, they swung by and I met the nicest people I've ever met. And I was like, hey, I, I don't think you're going to want to do this, but like, here's my pitch on what I want to do. And he was like, we're in. And I was like, oh my, oh wait, what? You're in. And he's like, look, I don't have the final decision here, but like, if you want to come out and meet with us, sell us on it, give us your pitch. And I was like, you tell me when I'm going to pitch you. Um, and so I went out and pitched Paradise Park and we partnered to do that together. Um, and then what I ended up about six months into Paradise Park is when I finally convinced Max to move back to Nashville. Um, that was an ongoing multi-year process of me saying, hey, Nashville's growing. There's an energy. I feel it. I know that 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 this industry is going to explode in this city because of what I just see very granularly at all of these places, but I could never do this by myself. There, there's no way I can do it by myself. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. Max, you're amazing and special and wonderful. And you have all of these things move back and let's partner up. And Max is living in New York at the time, like quite frankly, having the time of his life and living with our cousin, who's like a brother and like, he had zero interest in coming back to Nashville for like a year, year and a half. And finally, I convinced him to move back uh, about six months after Paradise Park opened. Um, and so from that point forward, we've partnered on everything together. It's 50-50 partnership, you and Ben, or you and Max. Exactly. Yep. So what aspects of what he brings to the table? I mean, you obviously needed him. Um, like you had a partner in this thing. What are the attributes that you do really well? And what was what was missing that you so needed him? And what are the things that he does really well? The yin to the yang. Like, what was the was there a moment when you were like, I I really need you, dude. This is why. Like, what was your pitch? My pitch was just that um I felt like this industry was growing. A lot of the reasons which you said earlier, which is this city was so different in. 2003 and four and five, like this city, but there was this energy. There just weren't a lot of venues for people to go to at the time, but there was this yeah. palpable energy you felt everywhere you went. And so my pitch to him was like, this can be super special. Um, and I just think that this industry is so hard. I mean, you've been in it, you've lived it. This is a brutal yeah. industry. It is hard every single day. Um, and I just knew I always wanted to have a partner to, to work through things with. I think you put more people, talented people together in a room, you end up with a better product each and every time. And so I, that was my thinking and my thought process. Um, and Max would tell you, like, I had two ways to go. I could partner with, you know, somebody that I didn't know very well, came in from another city, probably convinced them that the Nashville is going to start booming and all this stuff. 
but I genuinely never went that. The only thing I wanted was to partner with with Max, and I knew that if I could convince him to come back, like we could grow a company that we would be really, really proud of. And and quite frankly, I tr- obviously he's my brother. I trust Max with my entire life, and that's a huge part. We always know that we're in it together and that we're looking out for each other, and and really, quite frankly, like have the same goal of just doing fun, fun things together. I love that. And that's so, it it makes sense when you think about your success, because I think that trust, you know, Patrick Lencioni writes in five dysfunctions of a team, the absence of trust is such a a massive um, killer of businesses and partnerships, because if we don't trust that the end goal is exactly what we're both working towards, then you start questioning people's motives. And when you do something like you're doing, when you have complete trust that the other person that you guys are both rowing in the same direction, um, it really helps you in meetings and to have healthy conflict. Do you guys argue really well? I mean, I imagine when you have complete trust, that's the thing I think a lot of people miss is that arguing is good. Like conflict is good. If everybody's just going, "Mm, that's a good idea, that's a good idea, that's a good idea. You don't grow like the idea of arguing is a positive thing. Are you guys able to argue really well? Because I, mean, I think that's a, a yeah. Good I, mean, thing. I think that that is part of it. I mean, we the best part of the partnership is that we know the point that we want to get to, but you can get there hundreds of ways. And as long as we both know that our our direct goal is to get to that point, we will argue passionately on how to get there. And then what actually comes out of it, I think, is probably a compromise that would have been better than either one of our paths. And so because we sort of are able to vet each other and we're brothers, there's there are no limits. Like we can say whatever <laughs> we want to say to each other uh, and do. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, it's kumbaya moments. And you say, well, what if we sort of look at it this way? Those are the moments where you're like, oh, man, this this was so much better than what I would have done by myself. There's no doubt about that. I love that. That's just amazing. And I can see that with you guys. He's 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 like a different personality. Uh, he's definitely a different personality than you. I don't know him um, really at all, but I did a little bit of research before I talked to you. And he's there's a bunch of interviews out there with him. And he was named, um, you know, back a little while ago, top 30 under 30 uh, from is it Forbes. Uh, I, I have no idea. I actually don't read any of that stuff to be perfectly honest with you. I can't really? stand it. None of it. I don't read any of the press. The only stuff I've read is Jim Meyer's terrible review, which I took me years to get over. And now I love him, but there was a moment in time <laughs> ever since then I've learned. I can't, I don't have the thick skin. I can't read them good or bad. So you don't, you don't do social media. You don't read all that stuff. Uh, no, I don't. I actually don't read any of it. I will tell you. So this is true story. Jim Myers wrote the review and it was terrible. He was at the Tennessee at the time. Um, and those reviews would be published online at three in the morning. And I knew that. So I woke up at three in the morning. I'm sitting in bed. I open, go straight to the Tennessee and I read the review and I am devastated. I mean, devastated. And all I could think to do besides cry was I got in my car and I drove to every gas station I could and bought every single newspaper I could just so I thought other people wouldn't read it. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. And I've only read the review once. Uh, no one else. I, we, we have a copy of it. Um, my mom has a copy of it. And uh, I'm not allowed to read it. it. Takes me to a bad space. So ever since then, I've decided I don't read any reviews. You know what? There's so many people in this world. Election day is tomorrow. And there's so many people right now. With I think the popular thing to say is don't don't watch the news. Don't read what everybody's saying because everybody has an agenda. And if you don't do that, you're not swayed in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing, the other thing about it is these things are so personal. Like when Max and I open up a restaurant, like they are super personal to us. And when someone says something and they think something is is great, you might get a hyperinflated sense of like, oh, that's awesome. And if they say they don't like something, it, it you can start veering off course because you're like, oh, I got to fix this, that, and the other. We just sort of feel like we're, we make these commitments to ourselves that this is why we're doing these projects. We're going to keep going that path. And if we, I try and avoid all the other noise that sort of prevents me from uh, veering off that path. Okay. I'm going to get into, we're going to move into your next place. And I don't know if from Paradise Park, if you bought Merchants or if you went into um, Patterson House. I don't know which one your next one was. Like I said, I don't have the exact timeline, but I want to yep. go towards the Patterson house because again, bar 23, so innovative. So just ahead of its time. And then the vision behind paradise park and just how cool that place was the Patterson house. When I was, I remember back to that day when I was at America, I heard that cause you have all the liquor reps and everybody coming by and the, the, the word started getting out that this guy weirdos these weirdos uh these brothers <laughs> are opening this bar that's going to be like a speakeasy and they have like seven different kinds of ice and i was like what the hell they have seven different kinds of ice like what are they doing over there like why do you need different kinds of ice it was so foreign to me the different kinds of ice thing but you guys were like on it where did the idea for patterson house come to play i mean what i mean that had to be what 2008 2009 2010 yeah it was right around there um because i mean it's funny so i was at city hall load i mean loading out a show um and i was like you guys i had like a 5 30 a.m flight or something like that and they were loading out a show i was like you guys gotta hurry up man like i've got to get to the airport and I can't remember what band it was, but they're like, oh, where are you going? And I was like, I'm going to uh, to Chicago for, I can't remember even why I was going there. And like, if you go to Chicago, you've got to stop in this bar. And I was like, cool, I'll write it down. And lo and behold, I was in Chicago and I was like, I've got nothing to do. I'm going to stop by this bar. And it completely changed the way that I looked at cocktails. I mean, it was, was unbelievable. Was it? It's called the, the Violet Hour. Um, and I became obsessed with it um, to the point that I tracked down the folks that opened it, um, reached out to them, uh, met with them in New York. And I was like, look, here's the deal. Like, I don't know if this can work. And I don't know if Nashville is even somewhere where like you think this even makes sense. But I genuinely believe that like the product that's being put forth and the care and the thoughtfulness that goes into it is unlike anything I had experienced at the time what are your thoughts on this? And so that's sort of how the Patterson house um, came to be. And then through that, um, those guys um, introduced Max and I to Josh. Um, and Josh was the first GM 
of the Patterson house. Josh coming on the show, telling his story of what he was doing, the opportunity to come to Nashville and kind of be the general manager slash to be like a bartender and how absolutely amazing that experience was, uh, was one of my favorite stories of all time that we've, we've had on the show. Just the, awesome. the way that his brain works. He's one of the, um, he's one of the most gentle, most amazing people that um, I've met in this industry. I really, I'm just, he is um, not only is he one of the most talented people that I've ever worked with in my life and gotten to know, he's one of the nicest people that I've ever gotten <laughs> yeah. to work with and know. And um, I mean, he's just a really good person. And that is the, that's the type of people I want to surround myself with. Like if I, and so he was just, you know, such an amazing special person to go to work with and get to know. And so, um, yeah, that is how he got to Nashville. That's how we convinced them to get to Nashville and have been super, super lucky since then. Cause I mean, he is spectacular. So you don't read reviews, but when you open the Patterson house and you don't put a sign really out front, you do make it like a speakeasy. You have to like know how to get there. And it's this secret place. And then when you see other bars open up that are doing the same thing, I think the Holland House opened and they're doing craft cocktails. Um, but I mean, all the rage is craft cocktails and the term mixologist and all of these different things kind of happened. And you were the first one to do it. How does that make you feel? just to see all of the other, how that trend has just really hit Nashville. I mean, I think the trend was going to hit regardless. I don't think I had very, or Max or anyone had like very much to do with a lot of that stuff. I think that the trend was going to come regardless because all we're doing is putting delicious ingredients into a glass and drinking it. Like that's the funny mm. thing is you're right. Like that didn't really happen before oftentimes. And I think that, um, it was going to get here no matter what. I think one of the things that we've been lucky is that moment in time of the Patterson House opening team and the people that were involved were so special. I mean, the amount of Josh moved to Nashville like six months before the Patterson House opened um, and found him like this weirdo apartment. Um, and like we would spend hours at his apartment, like tink like tinkering with bitters and making all of these things. And it was just a, such a special time to be a part of that. Um, I'll remember that always. Um, and then I think that, you know, Josh's leadership, like they were just able to excel at not only the product they were putting forth, but making people feel really good about it. Right. I mean, our ask was insane if I look back on it. And most people thought we were crazy and that we would fail miserably because basically we were the most expensive drink in the city at that point. Twelve dollars. We were we were gonna make you I mean, you, you had to be seated. There were rules to do it. And you had to wait. Like when we opened, you were waiting 15, 20 minutes for your drink. Like there was nothing like fast about this bar experience. Um, it, there were a lot of asks from us. And the only way that would have worked was if everyone on the staff committed to the process to do things the right way from the product standpoint, but also make people feel warm when they walked in and they would be patient with us. And so I think, you know, that's really, when I look back at the Patterson House, that's what I think about more than anything is, is just how amazing that open, that, that team was, um, to, 
to really allow people to feel good about uh, what our crazy, insane asks were at the time. So when you do crazy, insane asks of people, you mentioned like, I think what you're talking about as a culture. Um, do you have a defined culture? Like, what is your, you know, is, is it something that people just know? Or do you have like core values that you lead everybody by? Uh, you know, I think that we want to make people happy. And every restaurant has its own little personalities that take place and take hold within some of those restaurants. But one of the things we strive to do or, or we try and do all the time is, you know, especially in Nashville today, you can go anywhere and get good food and drink. We are, and we should always be honored that they chose to come to any one of our restaurants. And we really want to engage everyone to make sure that, that everyone understands how lucky we are that they've chosen to walk through the door. That is both employee and guest, to be honest. And so I sure. think that at that moment in time at the Patterson House, I think we all sort of knew that, that it could be a really special thing if it was done the right way. And if it wasn't done the right way, we would not be there for very long because nobody is gonna wait 20 minutes for a mediocre drink and be treated with a mediocre attitude and staff that doesn't care if you're there. Like we had to go overboard on making sure people felt cared and uh, we provided thoughtfulness to the whole experience. Um, I think that is um, something that we've tried to preach for a long time. I love that you use that word mediocre. Um, I did a, I do a, I do on the, our show, the roundup every Thursday afternoon live. Uh, I do a segment called on brand in my segment last week. I talked about mediocrity and I defined it as just not being good. You know, the actual definition of, of mediocre is just like average, not even average, not very good. And that we can't accept that. Is that so? Is that just, is, are you every restaurant, everything that you do, are you just fighting that in every way? Or does that come naturally? Does that just like part of what you are? Because you use that word twice. And that's, that's yeah, something I, that I've never I experienced in one of your places. That is the hardest thing. And I, I think that when I look back on, and I'll get to the answer to the question, I, I promise. But please go ahead. Look, bar 23 wasn't special because of Austin and I. Like we were just two dudes. We had a staff there that was committed to ensuring that you had more fun in that bar than you do than you did the bar down the street, or else you wouldn't have come to our bar. Like, yes, we had seven shades of white, which was the dumbest thing we could have done. <laughs> but like, it was gorgeous. Stop it. It was gorgeous. It was great. But like, who has seven shades of white? We went to touch up paint, and we're like, well, we don't know what we're doing. Um, <laughs> but like, the people that work there made you have more fun than you did any other bar. That's why you would come back. We made you feel better about it, and you had a good time. At the same at City Hall, like no band wanted to play at City Hall, but we knew we would, they knew we would take care of them. We had a washer dryer. We would put, you know, video games in the green room for them. We were hospitable and nice when they would come and do sound check and load in. Same at Paradise Park, like on lower Broadway, like we just want to staff and, and that's what makes these places. It is not at the time Austin or I or Max, I, it is, it is the people every day engaging with the staff. Now I'll get to the answer of the, the mediocrity side. This business, like I said earlier, is so hard. And I I think that one of the things that that has been beaten into me is like, I grew up in Nashville. Like, these restaurants, when I leave the restaurants at work and I go eat in somebody else's restaurant and I know them, I don't want them to be like, oh man, I went to your restaurant and it was not that great. 
Like that's just an awkward experience. And I try and avoid the awkward experience as best I can. And the only way to avoid that is like, let's just push every day to get better and try and do things that are more special. And that is a hard thing to do because quite frankly, I don't think everybody really wants to do that. They might think they do, but then when you put the you put your head down and do the work, that's really hard stuff. And so, um, you know, I think that is, um, you know, the Patterson House going back to the, to that, like that's a really intense program. I mean, that is to get seven types of ice, to get the the you know the jiggers and the syrups and the bitters and all of this stuff, like to the amount of work that has to be done correctly to get that recipe right, to make sure the guest enjoys it. That's a lot of work and commitment. And if that was a mediocre cocktail, trust me, nobody, the staff wouldn't sign up for it. The guests wouldn't sign up for it. And we would have been gone many, many years ago. That's exactly a recipe for um, success. I mean, just to really do that really well. People, I think people crave that. I do. I love walking in somewhere and being... Instead of being underwhelmed, I love it when I go somewhere and it's flawless. I had dinner yeah. the other night at Yolan and it was, you know, it was flawless. Every single aspect from the, them opening the front doors to the safety that they have to I mean everything that they do. And it's like, yes, like ev- they hit I, every single note. And it was like the same thing at Bastion. Um, you know, chef and Lauren meeting at the front door and they have every single detail and everything is just perfect. And you go, yes, like this is it. I want to do this more. This is great. Yeah, and That's what excites me. I, like I get goosebumps, like genuinely thinking about those experiences. Like that is why I do this. And that's why Max does this. Like we want to make people happy and to make them happy, you have to go above and beyond. It's the little details that add up to make this experience unlike anything else. And I will say, I am so bummed. I have not been to Yolan yet. Yolan yet. Um, it is, everyone's telling me I've got to go. And I had, I was supposed to go and I couldn't go a couple of weeks ago. And now I, it's like on my list, I have to get there. You, you got to, I mean, it's, it's, it's an experience. It's, it's, it's one of those things kind of like, uh, with the bar 23, you get there and you're like, this is Nashville. Like I kept looking around going, I can't believe this is Nashville. This should be Chicago. Awesome. And of course he's, you know, but he's, you guys have been the the leaders in that. Every time you go to one of your places, you're like, this is Nashville. And like, it's interesting to see somebody else come in and go, this is Nashville. So, I mean, it's cool. I think it's great that they're in to do that. Cause I think they're going to help, you know, um, what's the term? Um, raising tides, raise all ships. Is that what it is? I don't know what it yeah. is. I, yeah, something like that. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Close um, enough. <laughs> my favorite story that Josh told was the idea of him being a chef and being at the Patterson house, putting ingredients together, a-, a la a chef behind the bar, though, putting ingredients together, taking a long time, setting it in front of somebody, and then watching what they do, watching what they do with it. So as a chef, typically, you're in a kitchen, you create food. You put it in a window, it's gone. You don't see what happens to it, it's gone. But at the Patterson house, he was watching when he set drinks down, if people took the garnish and set it aside, or if they ate it, or if they took a picture of it, or if they stirred it. But he was looking at all of these details and he thought, how cool would it be if we could do this with food? How cool would it be if I could create the food, put it in front of somebody, and constantly be tweaking it based upon like real time, seeing what they're doing with it going, 
ooh, nobody eats the mint. I'm going to take the mint and I'm going to replace it with the sage or whatever it might be. And he said he told several people about this concept. And they're all like, ah, it sounds cool, but you're crazy. There's no way. It's too expensive. You can't make that happen. Like, no, no, no. And he said, you know, it's just kind of randomly casually telling people over drinks that he had this idea and then he tells i didn't remember if he said it was benjamin or max one of you guys or you guys together he tells you the idea and they said let's do it and he was like no but it's going to cost too much money it's going to be too much it won't work and he was like and they were like no let's make it happen and that's how the catbird seat was born and i was just like who are these guys that just go yes was it a belief in josh was it a belief in 100%. a concept? How does how do you do that? How does your brain just go, uh-huh, let's roll? Everything you just said about Josh is the exact reason why I would never doubt the Capert seat. I mean, how many people do you know that actually pay attention to every single one of those details, every single shift they're working behind a bar, and notice that, and then make adjustments to the next drink they're making? Like, that is crazy. He's like the most no. ridiculously amazing, talented person in the world. How do you ever, and he, first of all, remember, he moved to Nashville for that job. I think yeah. Nashville's a better city because of Josh. So how would I ever sit down in front of Josh and Josh say, I want to do this and then say, no, we can't let him leave Nashville. So <laughs> we're like, yeah, we're doing this, right? Like, I mean, that that is exactly right. And I, I, I am sure that most people he would have told that had never worked had the opportunity to work with Josh probably would have told him he was crazy. Um, I, I fully believe that. But after working with Josh or seeing Josh bartend in that environment, you're not going to doubt Josh's ability to pull that off. So we, no. you know, we're, we're in, Let, let's do it. So here we go again. You've got, it is this pathway of innovation from the Patterson house to the catbird seat. I, I remember when the catbird seat opened, I tried to make a reservation. You guys were the first people again, the first people in the city to do online reservations because that wasn't really even a thing. You could go and schedule your dinner there because you had a finite amount of seatings and you could just do it. And it was like a month out booked out. Like you couldn't get, it was literally one of those things like the reservation was hard to get because you had to book it a month out. And it was, you know, I think at the time like $300 with wine pairings for two people to eat, which doesn't seem crazy. But like at the time I was like, wow okay and you were just killing it did you anticipate that uh no i mean i no i yes. think it are well, we did it <laughs> i think that um there are very few people that can pull something like that off i mean not only do you have to cook food at the highest level at the highest level not only for nashville but for any city anywhere people are going to go and travel to you also have to do it directly in front of guests and you also have to engage the guest directly in front of you to ensure that they feel comfortable doing that because that can get awkward. I've eaten in, in restaurants before and I've sat where the chef is cooking. And I will tell you that they are not the experience that I would go back to <laughs> because the chef, I mean, I could tell they didn't want me there. So I didn't want to be there. And it was just a terrible experience. That's a lot of pressure to put on one chef in a restaurant. And so uh, do we expect it to be as, as busy as, um, as it was and quite frankly is? No. But I also think that just going back, I, I, I think that 
we were all in on the team. I mean, the team up there, when you look back at the opening team of the catbird seat, it is some of the most special people in the world. And we were all in on them. And we, I mean, frankly, that was their show to either sink or swim on. And man, they, they swam and it was just a blast. Uh, I worked with them for, for a while up there. Did you feel, because you said that you went to Chicago and you got the idea for the Patterson house and bar 23 was you and Austin. Uh, we didn't mention Austin. You said he's in the business. He's the uh, proprietor for ML Rose. That's his kind of his thing that he's doing. That's his big thing. I think he also is in the Sutler, maybe cinema, something along yep. those lines. Uh, but- he's got Sutler and Von Elrods and the pool Von, hall yes. down there. And yeah, I mean, Austin's awesome and super talented, he's, but yeah, he's, he's in the business for sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, but the, so the Keppard seat was really not your first concept because you had Paradise Park, but like the first thing that you, is it the first thing that you did where that you weren't like, there was just an original idea that you guys did that other people were copying that other people were going, wow, look what you've done. Is that um, right with that? What do you mean? Like people, other people opened up tasting menus and, and things or, you know, yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't, was there another, there's not a restaurant like Catbird seat out there. Was there a restaurant at the time that was like Catbird seat anywhere? I mean, it was um, the first of its kind, right? I mean, national, nationally. Yeah, I would say that there were probably other restaurants you can get in here. To be honest, I don't remember the timeline of when other things opened up ar- yeah. around the country or the world, but it was definitely unique. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think the uniqueness came to be because Josh loved the bartending side. And to tell you, like, we didn't know Josh could cook when we hired Josh to bartend. Like we did not know that that was like, he was nearly as talented of a chef as he, we knew that the restaurant he worked in, he had to have a great palate, but like when he cooked food, we were, I, I mean, absolutely blown away. And there was no doubt in our mind that, that he was the guy that could execute something. Okay. So let's, let's move. We're going to move on. Cause we got a lot of restaurants to go over here. <laughs> we're going to run out of time. Um, Josh invites Trevor Moran to come in and cook with him while he's in town. And he says, Hey, come cook with me at the Catbird seat. This will be a lot of fun. And it turns out he says, Hey, do you, do you want to be the chef here? I'm going to go do other things. And you bring in Trevor Moran. So that's an amazing synergy that you guys brought in there with Trevor, who uh, we're going to get to in just a minute. Okay. Josh goes and um, he turns, he kind of becomes a corporate chef of, of sorts and does the menu for Pinewood Social. The idea for Pinewood Social is a place, again, completely different than everything else that you've done, but really the idea was somewhere that you would like to hang out, just somewhere that you you guys are busy, you're downtown, you need a place to work. So, hey, we're going to build a place that we typically would go. We got coffee, we got uh, you know, just a, a great place. Is that... You're kind of whose idea was Pinewood Social? Was it just you and Max together, or was it more so one than the other? No, Max and I, I mean, all of these things are very Pinewood was Max and I for sure. I mean, I think that if, ironically, I was given a book the day I signed my first lease at Bar 23 from my landlords there called A Great Good Place. Talks about third, third places. Um, Starbucks is probably like the most famous one, right? Like their goal was to get a cup of coffee and then you would stay and hang out and maybe grab a pastry. And then Max and I, um, 
you know, we're brothers. So we do a lot of things together. And one of those things was traveling. And um, when we travel, oftentimes we try and sneak out a day early, but we'll work in whatever city that we're in. Um, and, you know, we were in New York and uh, we basically spent the entire day, 14 hours working in a hotel lobby. Um, and we were like, oh my God, we have not left this place at all. And here we are um, in what people say is the most exciting city in the world. That's awesome. And really when it came down to it, you know, we wanted to create a third space where exactly like you said, like where you could hang out literally all day, spend more time than you ever thought you would ever spend at any one restaurant. That was the goal there. And just to keep you there for a really, really long, really, really long time. I think it's worked. It's been successful. Yeah, it's been great. We love it. It's one of those things that um, very rarely do restaurants and bars work out exactly as you think they're going to and be used the way that you want them to be. Pinewood is is used exactly how we hoped and dreamt that it would be. We have people that start companies out of there. We have people that have, um, you know, uh, met there for extended period. You know, we have people that that is their office. That is where they work five, six, seven days a week. Uh, and that is exactly why we wanted to be there. And it's it's truly special. We we are we love it. Well, I know my sister goes there a lot. She works for Hands On Nashville, and she's right there. All yeah. the time. So she's a, she's a big fan. Um, Josh. So just about the Josh thing, Josh then goes out and you guys open bastion. Now this is something that I've always wondered, how does this work? So as you have a parent company, strategic hospitality, and then when you guys open a restaurant like bastion with Josh, he's the chef and owner but do you guys just partner with him? How does how does that dynamic work? Because you do that with Josh and with Julia as well, and with Trevor now. Yep. At Locust. We I mean, just partner with their, them. Those are their restaurants, but they're also your restaurants. We partner with them. I mean, they, they run the show. Um, we're there to help when, if needed, um, and do the things that, you know, they may not want to do or may not have time to do and, and just try and experience share as best we possibly can. But, you know, we want to help support and grow them. Um, there's all of them. The three that you just named are absolutely insanely talented people that that we are fortunate and lucky to be involved with. And so, yeah, I think that that is a scenario where um, we just want to find ways to keep working and surrounding ourselves with people like that. And if we have the chance to partner with them and, and open a restaurant with them, we're going to take that every single time we possibly can. How did you guys meet julia sullivan middle school together where'd you go to middle school max and her are the same age um they went we uh we all went to university school okay yep right there on uh, 21st yeah and so josh i'm sorry so julia and max went to school together um julia went to school to college uh, in new orleans and then went to uh, culinary school and then was living in New York cooking for a long time. We have always stayed in touch just through mutual friends and all that stuff. And then I had heard that she was exploring the opportunity of leaving New York and moving back to Nashville. And uh, my wife and I were in New York at the time. We met with Julia just to sort of hang out and say howdy and do that stuff and tried to find a way for her to come back to Nashville. Um, and we had an opportunity at the time to put her on the opening team of Pinewood. And so we, you know, we quite frankly jumped at it. So you brought her back. She was on the opening team at Pinewood. And, um, when did the idea for Henrietta Red and that whole 
how did how do we move from being on the opening team at Pinewood to I want to open my own restaurant in Germantown, call it Henrietta Red, and could you guys work with me? <laughs> I, I, so she, you know, she was working on that before she moved back to Nashville. That was why she wanted to come back to Nashville. We were just lucky enough in our minds to be able to have her during a pocket of time. And um, as fate would have it, we now get to work with her for longer than that pocket of time. But she, that was always in her plans. We had very little to do with with her coming back. We were just sort of probably in her mind that that gap where she had an idea for a restaurant. She knew she wanted to be back in Nashville, but she needed a job in order to make all of these things happen and connect all those dots. And we were more than happy to work with Julia because we love Julia. Uh, yeah. And we were that little you know pocket where she could have a job and continue pursuing the opportunity to to open a restaurant, her restaurant. I'm so impressed by some of these people that you've been able to to work with. And just, I mean, catching lightning in a bottle, you know, for Patterson House or Keppertsy, Josh Habiger and Bastion and what she's doing at Henrietta Red in the party line. Um, she's one of those people to me that sets a standard of excellence. And I, I would I, also tell you that like I said about Julia, we're so, I mean, we are super lucky. Not only is she super talented, she's like one of the nicest people in the world. She's one of the, again, the greatest people or the greatest person that you could, that you could meet both from a professional standpoint, but also from a personal standpoint. And when you find people like that, in my mind, like that's who I want to hang out with and, and work with and be with. And, you know, that is ultimately, I mean, we are so lucky that they choose to work with with us and allow us to work with them. I mean, this is, these are folks that are, you know, whether we work together or not, I would be supporting everything they did because not only are they super talented, but like I said, they're just amazing humans that I like to surround myself with. Is there anybody that you've come across over the past 15 years that's been like one of those people that you didn't get that kind of got away or somebody that you were, were scouting that you really wanted to come work or be one of your chefs and went to do something different. Yeah. I think there's, you know, I think that there's several, I mean, Josh left us for a year and um, that was, and Trevor was supposed to leave us uh, for a while. And I, I would tell you that there's no way that Julie, that, that Max and I were the first people that Julia pitched to work with on her restaurant or else she wouldn't have gone that long without between moving to Nashville and, uh, and opening up Henrietta Red. So like, I think that um, there are a lot of those stories where it just sort of comes together naturally. There are other folks that, you know, you wish things had worked out with and they don't, but I wish they had, and they're wildly successful and doing amazing things on their own. And so sometimes it's, you know, um, you're sort of lucky that that it didn't work out for for all those parties involved because I'm not sure that that they would be doing as well with us sometimes. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So let's get to last weekend. You <laughs> last yeah. weekend you opened Locust. You kind of did the friends and family weekend the weekend before. Um, what is it like? So I mean, you, you're obviously nimble. You can move on your toes and you can do it. You, you're okay with change. You can make decisions. Um, what's it like opening a restaurant during a pandemic? You know, the pandemic in general is just obviously for the industry, it's crushing. 
every day is a new adventure is sort of what I tell people. Um, opening a restaurant during a pandemic is somewhat crazy. I mean, if, if you just sort of think about why would somebody open a restaurant right now, it probably doesn't make much sense. I think the reality for, for Locust and with Trevor is we were just too far down the road to not do it. it you, we had so much time, money, and resources invested into doing it that we had passed the point of no return. So we're going to plug forward. And so it makes things more complicated and more difficult. And you sort of have to maneuver around some original thoughts that we had for the restaurant that we hope we get back to in the near future. Um, but for right now, I think that, um, you know, we're just playing the cards that were dealt and trying to do them as best we possibly can. Okay. Uh, I would say, what are some of those things? But look, it's, it's, it's been a challenging time for everybody. And I, we had uh, Tom Morales on the show this past week. He made a pretty, pretty big announcement last week that he was, deciding to close Acme Feed and Seed pretty much based until the government can get its shit together uh, and they can start holding people accountable because his staff is not safe and he feels like uh, he has to be, he has to police people and yahoos that are coming into a bar and they don't, they don't care about the staff and they don't care about his bar. All they care about is themselves and as he said, their cerebral cortex isn't developed enough to really fully grasp the fact that this is a business and these are people and respect for what they're doing. You have, uh, and this, I'm going to go back a little farther. You have the downtown sporting club, which you made one of the biggest pivots pre COVID. I think you shocked the entire world when you decided that you were going to shutter paradise park to create the downtown sporting club and then you brought paradise park back on the base floor tell me about the dynamic of downtown right now and what tom's decision to do that and what what are your thoughts about that um i think first of all during this time the attempt is you if you feel like you need to do something, you need to do that, right? I mean, I think for, for someone, we know them um, pretty well and understand all of the variables that he said. Um, and it's a brutal time for the industry in general. So I would never second guess or doubt that exactly what he is, what his decision-making process was, was 100% accurate. Like they are really talented folks. I think that it raises the awareness of like, hey, this is, we need to work together to solve some of these problems or everyone is going to be going that route, right? Everyone's going to start closing down if the staff isn't safe and we can't keep respect going both ways and we can't get, you know, everyone pushing in the same direction, then everyone's going to start closing because that is what they're going to be forced to, to do. We've been really lucky in a sense that we haven't really had those problems where people didn't respect our staff. We've had the vast majority of folks that we are engaging with at this point, understand what we're doing and going through, and they've been very receptive to it. There are situations that sort of break your heart and you're like, man, this is, this is just sad. Like this shouldn't be as difficult um, to explain to you that we're just gonna ask you to wear your mask. Like this should not be um, that difficult, but those for us, we've been lucky. Those are pretty few and far between. Very nice. Do you think that that is because of something that you're doing specifically and intentionally 
Are you informing the guests ahead of time that this is our standard, this is what we need to be doing, and that they know walking in that this this is what's going to happen when I'm in this building? And are other people being as responsible as you? Because I think it's been widely documented that there's people that are that believe this is a hoax and believe that after the election, this is going to go away. And it's not really that bad. And you're killing my business. Let's just open up. Who cares? That may be perpetuating a narrative that may be causing that. Does that make, am I, do you know where yeah, I'm going no, with I, that? I understand what you're saying. I, I don't know if there's anything we're doing. I can tell you um, the way that we view it as a, as a company. And I think that um, in early March, even before we were shut down, we sort of saw this thing coming. And so we had started internalizing plans. Um, I don't think we anticipated getting shut down as fast as we we did. But once you're shut down, quite frankly, we dug in and we were like, okay, here's the new, this is going to be the norm for a while. What can we do to A, stay in business and keep people working? And then B, how do we also at the same time make this as safe as possible? And what can we learn from other folks around the world that are dealing with this, right? Because the US wasn't the first country to, to deal with this, um, nor is the US the only, we're actually somewhat odd that if you look at a lot of um, um, other places around the world, they've dealt with other viruses and pandemics before, SARS being one of them. And so the minute we sort of saw this coming to a head is the minute that we put our heads down and started researching best practices from around the world and really went into, okay, how can we, safely operate. And I don't know if we're doing very much differently or better or worse than others, but I do think that we are trying to do as much as we can to um, be as safe as we possibly can. And I'll reference, I'm getting to the, the thing on, on Lower Broadway, which is where I think Tom's coming from. What, I think we're probably one of the only places on Lower Broadway that's, temp, that's giving temperature checks to every person that walks through the front door. Um, so every employee, we're temperature checking every vendor, every delivery person, and every guest, we are temperature checking. And there is a part of me that thinks there is a segment of the folks that just, they're like, you're idiots. I'm not going to have my temperature check. This is, this is a hoax. So I'm just not going to go to your establishment. And if that is the filter there, we're perfectly fine with that. Right. Yeah. But so maybe that is part of why we haven't dealt with it on the inside as much is because we're actually screening that even before we're actively engaging in them stepping foot into the building. Because if you don't believe in it and you don't think that it's a thing and you're going to make fun of people for wearing masks, a bar to drink cheap beer is probably not worth you wearing a mask and getting temperature checked on the way in. So we may be screening some of that out before even they, they step foot in the door. That makes complete sense. And I think that that's, it is a good, um, every time I walk in somewhere and they tempt me when I walk in the door, I feel warm and fuzzy. I don't get angry. I feel like, okay, good. They take this seriously that I feel like I'm going into a much safer environment. Just on that front end, it's almost like the hostess. When you walk in somewhere, if somebody greets you with enthusiasm, makes you feel welcome, the rest of your stay, you typically feel welcome. If you get a cold reception, when you walk in, it sets the tone. And when you're getting your uh, temperature taken when you walk in the door. It sets the tone for what kind of experience you're going to have, which typically is a is a is more safe. So that that makes complete sense. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the one of the smallest things we can do, right? What's the in my mind, and this is where we push. Like, we want to be 
world-class leading in this. Like, what's the most we could do? Like, if I was just Joe Schmo off the street, what would make me want to go to that hotel, eat in that restaurant, get on the airplane, do whatever it is? Well, in that case, if I could test you before you walked into my door and I knew that you were um, negative on the test, yeah, then I would feel great about having you in and the staff should feel great about having you in and the other guests would feel like there's a safety net there and all these things like that is, you know, if we're going all the way down the rabbit hole, that to me is like, that's how you do this, like really, really well. You walk off Broadway and test everybody. Then once you get in, you get a wristband. Exactly right. Like that's, that's world-class. That's industry leading around the world. We're just asking you to check your temperature at the door. Like that's not really a big deal. So yeah, I agree with you. It makes me feel better, but it's, it's for someone that doesn't want to do it. Like that's not a heavy lift. That's not a big ask. So just, you can probably go somewhere else. What's the biggest thing that you've learned throughout this, the pandemic and you know, quarantine, all of this stuff. If you could go back to yourself in March and give yourself one piece of advice with what you know now, what would it be? I think that it's going to be a marathon. That this that this is going to be a part of our lives for longer. And so make sure that you take your time to fully think through some of the things that you're trying to do because this will be around for a long time. And that is, you know, I think that in our minds, where we are right now in in March, if I said that in November, we were gonna be in, a, in potentially the worst spot of the trajectory of the pandemic, we wouldn't have programmed that out, right? Like we sort of internally thought by the end of this year, we would be back in you know, operating, you know, as close to normal as we can. And I think the reality is like, we probably should have carried that way forward, um, way further out on the calendar. Um, And then ultimately, I think that spending the time to do that and talking to people and really learning from what other people are going through is something that, that I'm glad we did, but I wish we did more of. So let's just say um, today is Monday. You're going into a meeting after this with Max and your director of operations, general managers. What are you guys focusing on? We see that we see the cases spiking all over the country. Uh, cities are starting to close down different mandatory. Hey, look, we're, we're growing too fast. 14 days. We're going to back off. Everybody stay at home. Um, what are you guys talking about right now? What do you see 30 days, 60 days? What are, what is your strategy? going forward like what's the thing you're working on tomorrow your innovation your brain what are you guys talking about we are playing out many scenarios that way we are prepared for it what we recognized on march 16th when we had to close or march 17th when we had to close was that we theoretically had a sense of what that would mean but we didn't actually know all of those dominoes and so we are one of the scenarios we're playing through right now in meetings and we spend, we have these two hour pockets of time that we talk about is, okay, if we're forced to close for whatever reason, what does that look like? And that's one of the paths we're, we're going down. Um, the other path we're going down is how do we make this safe, safer every single day? What can we do not only for guests, because quite frankly, 
they're coming in when they want to come in, but for the staff at every restaurant, how can we be as safe as possible? And what, what procedures can we put in to be better today than we were yesterday? And then the other side of it is I, I firmly believe that um, it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets a little bit better and, and really try and figure out what that means, not only from the business side of it, but how do we make it as easy as you can over the course of the next 90 days to navigate this because being nimble and um and taking the lessons that we've learned from um march and what that means i think we're trying to make sure we put together really thoughtful plans for moving forward are you guys i mean there there are decisions we made in march and april that we probably shouldn't have made um we were closed we felt like we had to do something we did something and it ended up just wasting time, money, resources, and effort that we want to make sure that that we are really focused in on the things that we know can work and make a difference rather than spin our wheels like we did, you know, several months ago. What's one of those things that you did that you feel like wasn't worth the time or energy, the money that you spent? Uh, you know, I think we we really spent time talking about delivery and how we're going to navigate you know, a, a $13, $12 cheeseburger and fries. How are we going to get that to somebody's house? Because then you could keep cooks in. Are we going to hire our own delivery drivers? What's the platform we're going to use? And I think that, and that, you know, again, we have multiple restaurants that are all doing this. And so we ended up just sort of like this hodgepodge of stuff that just didn't really have a cohesive vision forward. Um, and so I think that knowing that we'll have a much more systemized and systemic way to like do a family plan or large format stuff to families or delivery, but just the way we did it in March and April was just not, it, it was not the product we wanted to put forth. So I think that's part of that mediocrity I was talking about before. And right now when you're, if you're a restaurateur out there and you're planning for what's going to happen, um, my on brand segment two weeks ago was, to go in delivery, um, I recognize one of the restaurants I work with that their sales on sun, two Sundays ago was 57% of their revenue was to go in delivery. And wow. it is coming back as these cases spike and it gets darker earlier and it gets colder. Kids are in school. They're coming home. Parents are at work. They're coming home. They're going, I don't want to cook. I've been cooking for eight months. And now to go isn't as mystified. You know, everybody's been doing it. It makes it so easy to go online and just order food. I feel like there's going to be this second wave of to go and delivery and shut down or not. I think that being intentional with what you're doing around that and doing it really well. I think the people that do it, that kind of go, it's a pandemic. We're not going to do it very well. We have to do it. So we'll just do it. I think that's a huge miss. I think I wholeheartedly the, agree with you. Yeah, being intentional and doing nothing with mediocrity and just killing it. It's that same kind of thing that if you focus on it, you put the plan together right now, when this thing happens, if you're prepared and you can execute at a very high level, you're going to, I think you're going to be okay. I mean, I think that's. Yeah. I mean, and I told, you know, when our meeting just the other day, we told him like, look, we hope all this exercise we're going through right now, we never use. We hope this is a waste of time. But if it's not a waste of time and we have to use it, we need to use it and make sure that we are world-class at our delivery program moving forward. Because what it was in March or April is embarrassing. So if we're going to do it, 
we got to commit to doing it. And that, that is everything, right? Like that's the vessels we're using to get stuff to people. That is to go cocktails. What does that mean? That is the labels and the reheating instructions. I mean, Julia at Henrietta Red and part of she crushed it. I mean, I, I looked at her stuff and I was like, how did you pull this off so quickly? Like I was mesmerized. I was amazed by the product that she was able to put forth. I was not only like proud of her, I was like aghast at how amazing that they were in that. And then I looked at some of the stuff that that we were doing in other restaurants and I was like, this is like, not only is it not good, it's kind of like embarrassing. Like I see the names ordering, let's go into a, friend's, a friend of mine's house. Like, oh man, like we got to send it, but like I got to call him and apologize at the same time. And I just don't want to be put in that situation again. No, I, so I mean, I think that that's, part of what I was talking about, just that look into your brain as to what you're doing right now and really successful places that are innovative that really operate at a very high level are putting plans together right now, contingency plans that, hey, we need to be ready if this happens so that we don't do things in a mediocre way, so that we get this thing going and we excel at a high level. So that that's what I was going for. Uh, maybe just validation on my own thoughts, but <laughs> no, I think you're 100% right. I mean, I think that um, if we we sort of saw what worked before, you know, and I think we saw our weaknesses and we want to be proud of what we put forth, like I've said. And if we knew we were weak in certain areas and we sort of see we might be going back to it, shame on us if we do the same thing again. Like we got to get better at that. And so that is where, and that's where I think a lot of folks don't really understand i get asked all the time like go to work early in the morning and my friends are like what do you do at eight in the morning or 7 30 in the morning in the office like you're you serve dinner and i'm like all the planning that goes into that is happening well before anyone ever steps foot in a restaurant and there are people that like they look at me like i'm insane for plotting forward you know what might happen in six weeks that we might be more focused on delivery they're like, well, we'll deal with that when, if and when it happens. And I'm like, well, you're already going to be behind if you're planning on thinking about it, if and when it happens. In my mind, we're planning on it now and hoping we never have to use it because it was not fun to do. No. So, yeah, that's that's the validation. Uh, <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly with exactly what you're saying. Well, good. Well, OK, so we've gone through. All of your restaurants, I think all of them. Did I miss any? I mean, obviously, we have a couple. Uh, LaSalle was a restaurant that you had to, you, you closed. Um, yep. I don't think we'd be happy to talk about that, but I want to kind of get into some more of you. I think we, one of the things we haven't talked a lot about is you. We've talked about your businesses, and on this show, I typically like to talk about people. And I want to learn more about some of the things you do when you're not at the helm of strategic hospitality. So you mentioned earlier your wife. Yeah. Um, how long have you been married? What's, you got children? What's, what's, uh, I don't. Yeah, I got two kiddos. Got an active house right now. Got, uh, been married for uh, nine years and um, got Where two you kids. Your wife? Like, she, uh, this is actually, I don't know if I should tell this story. She does PR. And I met her right before Paradise Park was opening. And she was assigned to write the opening press release for Paradise Park. And uh, that's how I met her. So she did she come and interview you? And you were like, 
Wow. Um, I went to their office and I was like, hey, what I had learned previously was, I try not to make the same, same mistake twice, but when you go pull a building permit, it's public record. Someone will write about it and they just sometimes will botch what it is. And I knew that if it was called Paradise Park Trailer Resort, I could only imagine what was going to be written. So I was like, let's get ahead of this. So I met them to say, hey, I don't want anything formal. I just need to know what to say should somebody call. What does this look like? Um, and so I met them at the office um, and that's how I met my wife. Wow. Did you, did you did you know when you met her? Was it one of those moments where you met her and you were like, you're, you're the one? I mean, I no, I think that um, she's beautiful and I think she's an amazing person. But I th- and I think that um, we built an amazing relationship off of working together and we became good friends that way. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, you sort of I had to start professional. Right. That's what you're supposed to do in these scenarios. And uh, those emails start to get a little uh, maybe flirtier than they probably should at the time. <laughs> How did you propose to her? So went to, uh, I've got like a little hidden bar that I go to. Uh, everyone knows it, but you can sort of hide away there. They're called the Oak Bar at the Hermitage Hotel. I think the place is probably one of the most special places in the world. Um, and it's That's also it. a place where my grandparents used to go. Um, so it's like got some sentimental reasons. So proposed to her uh, at the Oak Bar. I have Dee Patel, who's the managing director at the Hermitage Hotel, uh, on the show tomorrow for an election day special. Oh, awesome. I I think the world of of her and I think the world of the hotel and um, it's just one of those classic Nashville places that is just special um, and holds it holds a sort of special place in our hearts for sure. So you proposed to her in the Oak Bar or in the bathroom outside the Oak Bar? It was in the bathroom. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> well, the bathroom is pretty spectacular. But the bathroom's amazing. In yeah, fact, I mean. I, I got in a lot of trouble because we got married outside at War Memorial. And um, we, obviously my groomsmen and I went to the Oak Bar before the wedding and we're, um, you know, maybe having some drinks. And the photographer for the wedding, um, that's when she was supposed to be taking our pictures. And I'm not joking, every single one of our photos is in the bathroom at the Hermitage Hotel. And because my wife wasn't with us, she has no idea what was going down. And she gets the photos back and she's like, what the hell? Could you guys have tried? And we're like, well, we A, did try. B, we had drinks. And C, isn't that the photographer's job to tell us what we should be doing? Not just like in the bathroom taking photos of us posing. But yeah, yeah so every one of our groomsmen photos are in the bathroom there. Hermitage Hotel. So if you don't know what we're talking about, outside of the Oak Bar at the Hermitage Hotel is a very cool green and black fashioned bath. Anybody can go in there. It's like a men's restroom, but like they do tours of it. Anybody can go in there and check it out. It's really neat. Been a lot of music videos. It's been in his, uh, it's been in Benjamin's <laughs> groomsman photos. It's a lot of famous things. It's, so uh, it's, it's beautiful. Married nine years. Yep. You've got how many children? Two, six and three. You said six and three? Yeah. I have I have a five and seven. So we're okay. Pretty close there on, on that. Yeah. Um yeah. How's how's that been throughout the pandemic just with them and the whole thing? Have you got to spend more time with them than you ever thought you could? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in the you know, we've tried to stay in touch with everyone. And uh, V, I think I told you, like, 
every single video conference platform you can imagine I've been on in the past, uh, you know, six, seven months. But when it first started and everyone was at school and home and all that stuff, I mean, my kids were were stars of these videos. They'd be sitting on my lap or running around in towels before bath or whatever it looks like. Um, yeah, they, um, I get, I, it was, you know, I think that was the positive that came out of it was, was that. And then I think that, you know, I think that being able to spend time with them without distraction in a lot of ways um, was, has been, has been really nice. I want to do some rapid fire questions. And I, I have one question I forgot to ask you that I wanted to ask you. Maybe I kind of roundabout asked you about the pandemic, but mistakes. We all make mistakes. You probably strike me as somebody who appreciates making mistakes because you get to feel what it feels like to make a mistake. And like anybody who's a leader, uh, you almost want to make mistakes because you get to really learn from those things. And that's how you learn most of the time. What's one, what's, what's probably the biggest mistake that you've made throughout all these years of strategic hospitality and um, what'd you learn from it? Oh, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of mistakes. I mean, I think that, um, is there one that like sticks out? Yeah, I think there's a recurring one. And I think that it, it always irks me um, because I can look back at those little things. And I'm like, man, I can't believe I did that again, or I can't believe I adjusted. And I think I referenced it a while ago, which is why I don't read reviews. But it's also, you know, I'm in the restaurants a lot. I mean, it's not, this is not like something where I live somewhere else. Like I'm in the restaurants frequently. I, I, I'm talking to the guests and the, and, and the staff frequently. And the thing that I still do, and it's hard to, to, to not do is when you hear someone say, this isn't good, or I don't like this. And you start adjusting and losing the, the true vision of what something was. That is a mistake that, that ends up causing a lot of heartburn. Uh, for a lot of reasons. And I think that that is something that I, I still try and um, try and get better at each and every day is, is really try and stay true to what the thought process was um, in the very beginning of why we opened up a restaurant or what our thoughts are on, on why we're going in this direction versus another. But that is a, that is for sure a constant mistake that I, I try and learn from. Really just so believing in yourself and believing in your ideas and your vision and sticking to it and not letting it just gets watered down. If, if you start compromising on every single thing. And when I say compromise, I'm not saying like, Oh, it's with the people that work in the restaurant or it's the people. It is just the constant, like if someone doesn't like a menu item, it means it doesn't mean it's a bad menu item. It just means it's not for them. We can find something else they might like, but that menu item is going to be like, Oh my God, there was, there's a major catastrophe on X, Y, or Z. And, um, and then all of a sudden you start wavering and you're you're unable to commit to what that thought process was. Um, that's a problem. And that is, you know, Max and I have, we constantly talk about that. Like, is it a real problem or it is a problem? Is it a problem in our heads? Um, and then the real problems we obviously need to fix and, and want to find ways to fix. But the stuff where you sort of lose sight of, of, um, of what the original intent was. And I think going back to the catbird seat, like that's a restaurant you can't compromise on either. That was going to work or not work. Yeah. And if we started compromising on the food um, or the comments we heard back on the food, it wouldn't be the catbird seat, right? Like, you know, one of the things that Eric, who was Josh, 
Josh's co-chef up there, which um, that he served was um, he had a pigeon course on the menu and the pigeon course came claw on. And, you know, that was jarring for 50% <laughs> of the guests. I bet. And, and, you know, it's funny, we have a system and um, the number of pigeon allergies that exist in that system, I find so funny because like, that's not an allergy, but um, they just didn't want to be served pigeon with the claw on. So that's how that was their workaround. On I have that a scenario. pigeon allergy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Squab um, allergy. And, but I think if we start compromising on that, then what else are we going to compromise on? How, that product gets diluted down to something that isn't special anymore. That's just an example of one that, you know, that's how it can start going haywire. Gets diluted down to meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Like, no, exactly. it's a pigeon with a claw on it. Damn it. Let's do yep. it. Um, all right. What is um, rapid fire kind of questions? What is your favorite restaurant outside of a strategic hospitality restaurant? And we you can go by neighborhood if you want, but like in Nashville. City House. All right. Favorite? Ar and Arnold's. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, that should be a given, right? Yeah, I agree. That's why. City House is our go-to. City House is the go-to. Um, favorite movie of all time? You can go drama and comedy if you want, because those are hard to delineate. Favorite movie? That's a that's not a rapid fire question. I got to go all the way back through the. You know, I, I'm going to go like Shawshank Redemption or something like that. Oh, that's my, that 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 is that's my answer when people ask me that question. Really? Okay. That, better sounds like the lambs. Oh, I, that's a good one too. Those. Two. I was just joking about that movie with Trevor yesterday, so that's good. <laughs> it's a classic, absolute classic. Favorite <laughs> band or musician. Oh, I'm going to go, I mean, I'm going to use this for sentimental reasons, but I'm going to go Rolling Stones on fan just because it's been part of our family forever. Our mom is a diehard Rolling Stones fan. Now, what does your mom do? Because my my dad knows your mom. Like, my dad is oh, really? your mom. Yes. Okay. And I don't know, what what is your mom? Who is your mom? So, uh, your my mom, mom is referenced is awesome. a lot. Yeah, she's awesome. Uh, she grew up here. So, you know, we've she's been here forever. So she tends to know a lot of folks. She currently works with um, Jim Cooper on some, um, you know, prison reform work that they've been doing on that side of it. Previously, she was with um, the Conservancy um, for Centennial Park. So she was helping raise money for uh, the remodel of Parthenon, uh, of the Parthenon um, Park and Centennial Park and all of that sort of stuff. So she's been doing that for, for a long, long, long time. Did she work with Musicians Corner at all? She does. Yes. So she, um, her and John Tuminello really started that and kicked that off and that's John's show, but she was heavily involved in the very beginning for sure. Okay. That's what, that's gotta be what it is. My dad, um, uh, was the president of the gospel music association for years. Oh, cool. Okay. And, um, he go, he used to go to that all the time and he's a, uh, yeah, he was on leadership Nashville and leadership music and all these, he's been a part of those things. So I'm, I think that's how he knows your mom. I don't know. But I didn't yeah. know what your mom like that, did. I was like, "That's a, lot a great of event." Musicians' Corner is awesome. It's a really cool thing Nashville does. What do you think the best event, like the best Nashville festival, is? Is it Live on the Green? Is it the Nashville Food and Wine Festival? Is it Musicians' Corner? Is there one that's your no, favorite? People make fun of me. Yeah, I think that uh, I think CMA Fest is like one of the most special things the city does. Why would people make fun of you for that? Because that's not what someone that lives here is supposed to say. 
But I, I, I believe that the fact that you have all of these people coming to Nashville to experience Nashville as a whole is one of the coolest things any city does. I mean, forget just Nashville, but you have 100,000 people converging on a city because they're diehard country music fans and they want to experience all they can of one particular city in Nashville. That's pretty special. And, you know, yeah, you're not, I'm not supposed to say that, but um, I've met some of the coolest people in the world through, through hanging out down there and getting to know folks. So one of the things I did um, previous to COVID was um, on the weekends, I would go drive Uber um, because my dad is retired. And one day we're sitting out by his pool and we're talking. He goes, so I started driving Uber and I went, what? He goes, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm bored and um, I like talking to people and I've got a Tahoe, so I'm going to do it. He goes, and I'm going to tell you, it's one of the funnest things I've ever done. And I started cracking up and I was like, I so want to do that. Like, I want to do that so bad. So I had a couple heart surgeries a couple years ago and we had all oh, these wow. medical, it's nothing. It was just a, not a high say heart. So it was an ablation. I had atrial fibrillation anyway, good to go now. But I had these heart surgeries and I had these mounting bills from this thing. And I told my wife, I said, hey, I think I want to go drive Uber and I'll pay off these bills. And she goes, no, nah, I don't want you doing that. And I'm like, come on, you won't have to budge anything. I'll just do this and I'll pay them off. And she was like, oh, OK. So I've got to go drive. I go Saturday and Sunday mornings. All I ever drove Saturday and Sunday mornings. I didn't do any late night or any of that kind of stuff. But I will tell you, during CMA Fest is one of the funnest things I've done is drive people around because I'm a total Nashville homer and I know a lot about the restaurants in town and I've been in a lot of them. Like, and so driving people, picking people from the airport who are coming into town for this, the level of excitement that they have just to be in Nashville is one of the coolest things that I feel like just to be an ambassador for the city, being in a car, being like, Man, you live here. What's it like living here? And just being able to talk to them with enthusiasm and tell them where to go and what to do. And, you know, I love driving people around Centennial Park. They're like, have you guys, what should we do? We're here. Have you seen the Parthenon? They go, what's the Parthenon? I go, oh my God, you guys have five minutes. I'm going to go drive you around the loop. And they're just, their faces going, that's, that's amazing. Look at that thing, man. And some of those moments of being in the car with people coming to Nashville for the first time some of the most special things I've it's my favorite hobby some of the favorite things I do I agree I mean Max and I I agree completely Max and I have seen kids grow up you know 12 13 14 years they've the same families come to the restaurants during CMA fest and so we've watched these families grow up it is it is so cool um and so um I, I think that it's I think it's a super special thing for a lot of reasons, but I think that, you know, to me, the fact that whatever's happening in Nashville is special enough that these people will pick their life up, take a vacation specifically during this one week a year to come to a city and hang out and experience it. Like that's a special thing. I don't care what city around the world you're talking about. That's a special thing. And so it is, it's probably one of my favorites on a side note, um, Max and I's dad um, retired, got super bored moved to Florida and works at the Apple store. So I know all about those weird second hot jobs. We talked to him. We're like, dad, what are you doing? He's like, going to play dodgeball. And we're like, wait, what? He's like, the Apple stores together playing dodgeball. I love it. Yeah. That's, that's, 
that's his thing. Like he's like, no, I love it. And he always has stories. There's always some person he picked up or something weird or somebody. And I've, you know, I've picked up some interesting people. Um, I got lots of stories. I could do a whole podcast on the people I've picked up. I'll interview you Uber. next time. We'll do an Uber episode. I'll interview you. <laughs> hey, it would be quite interesting. Um, <laughs> all right. My rapid fire was real quick. Just a couple of personal questions. Just kind of like, what, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies when you're not in the restaurant? What are you typically doing? Hanging out with family? Yeah, for sure. hundred percent. And that's, I mean, I think that's the question I get asked all the time is like, how do I balance crazy restaurant world yeah. with, with family stuff? And, um, I, I, sometimes I'm better than others, but if I'm not working, I'm spending time with the fam and especially the kiddos. And, uh, I want to be completely dedicated to that. So without a doubt, that's it. Um, it used to be, you know, a lot of travel and food and experiencing and all that stuff, but especially now with the, you know, pandemic and all that, that makes it way more difficult, but, um, especially want to, spend time with with the family well i don't know how to thank you enough we're on here for an hour an hour and a half plus and um i feel like we've just got to the surface of kind of the backstory through all of the restaurants what you're doing um i've always been an amazing just just a huge fan of everything that you're doing as somebody who absolutely loves the city of nashville loves the hospitality business I'm drawn to leaders. I'm drawn to innovators and people. And I just want to study them and kind of ask the questions because I love the way people's brains work. And I just don't know how to say thank you enough for coming on the show today and just talking with me for so long about everything that you've done. I, I have like 40 more questions. I, there's not a lot of, you don't do a lot of interviews. No, I don't. Um, I, like I said, I love what you've been doing. I mean, this is... I, I love that what you do and I think it's so personal and so um, personable and that I, I enjoyed this. So thank you for having me. Happy to come back. We can shoot the other 40 questions whenever you want, but, but truly thank you and, and congrats on, on everything that you've got going on. Cause I've been listening and I know a lot of other folks are. And so it's, it's been a fun addition during this time for sure. I, I hope it keeps going for a long time. I, I intend to, it's been something that um, people have asked me that have said, so podcast it's, good or they like it or whatever but it's been really cathartic for me i mean you know as we go through this time where we're all alone i've been able to connect on a deeper level with more people than i think i ever would you get into kind of yeah. your own little circle and i've branched out through every neighborhood in this entire city and spoke to so many people and just kind of listen to what their stories are and what they've gone through and my goal is hopefully somebody who's sitting at home alone who thought they were alone or going through something that was um, scary and that they were alone, got to hear somebody else and go, Hey, look, other people feel the same way I do. Everything's going to be okay. And, and I, I know we got to run. And first of all, that's awesome. I, I know we got to run, but I will tell you that one of the things that Max and I will say, and is 100% true is, and why I think your show is so cool. Nashville's like one of the most supportive cities we've ever been to anywhere in the world. I mean, that's why I think what, specifically the restaurant and bar business in this city. That is why I think it's had such a progression over the past 10, 15, 20, whatever you want to say years, because it's so supportive. And this show, this is part of it, right? This is all these different folks in this industry coming together. I mean, that is Max and I wholeheartedly firmly believe that that is that what's happening in Nashville during this moment in time outside of the pandemic is like special, no matter where you put it in the world. And so that, you know, 
stoked to be a part of it. And thanks for letting me hang with you. Well, the final thing I do with every guest is I open the floor and I say, take us out. Whatever you want to say, anything, nothing's, you know, whatever you want to say, the floor is yours. And then we will let you, uh, let you end the show. Whatever you want to say. I I think I would just say thanks for, honestly, thank you for letting me, uh, hang out with you. Like, I mean, you referenced that I don't do a lot of this stuff. Um, but I, I'm, I really like the way that your stuff comes across and, um, it's not just a constant barrage of normal interview questions that typically people will give and get. And so I think that, you know, thanks for letting me hang out. Also, I think that just in general, I I think that what we have as a city is so truly special. I hope it continues for, for many, many, many years to come. So please stay in touch, come hang out. Um, whenever you want, reach out and, uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thank you. Uh, Benjamin Goldberg, you're a, um, you're an inspiration, man. Thanks for everything that you do as well. Thanks. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks, man. All right. There it is. Benjamin Goldberg. Thank you so much again for stopping by here at Nashville restaurant radio. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I'd love to know what you think. Find the post that we talk about it on social media. Let us know. Uh, on Anchor, you can leave us a, a thumbs up. You can go to any of our podcast area and hit subscribe. You can watch this video on YouTube. And uh, we just thank you so much for listening. And um, we hope that you are being safe out there. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs>